Hello, and welcome to Controversies in Church History. My name is Derek Taylor. This is the podcast for uh, all the most important, uh, interesting, exciting, but also controversial events in the life and history of the Roman Catholic Church. I am Derek Taylor, your host for the podcast. Thank you all again for listening. Thank you to all the listeners out there uh, and to our patrons on Patreon, as always. Uh, You can find uh, Controversies in Church History on the web at churchcontroversies.com on social media, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. Uh, And as I mentioned before, you can become a patron of the podcast if you so wish. Uh, Do check out our our, um, website. We have uh, content up on there, blog posts, links to my writings. I have a new article out uh, this week, or yesterday, uh, in Crisis Magazine called The Last Temptation of a Lay Apologist. It's about the temptations of being a lay apologist for the faith in this day and age. So take a look at it there. We'll also have a, a very long article coming out, I think, at the end of next week or end of August, which will be next week, um, on the critics of the First Vatican Council. I wrote an article for the uh, uh, traditionalist website, 1 Peter 5, going through what the, the critics of the definition of papal infallibility and primacy at that council uh, what their criticisms were and sort of evaluating them for uh, historical reasons, but also for, for current reasons. There are people, of course, who are <clears throat> objecting to the way the current pontificate uses its authority, and so I'm bringing that into play and talking about Vatican I and, and how it um, played into that. So that stuff's coming up. Uh, but today this is a single episode, and it's one of these review episodes where I go back and take a look at... Uh, films which I've been doing lately but uh, sometimes books and this is a book that's kind of heady uh, it's a book called God Owes Us Nothing maybe the greatest title for a book ever I don't know now, I've always loved the title of the book you know for a variety of reasons but <clears throat> God Owes Us Nothing was by the Polish philosopher and I don't have his dates he's passed away I think 2011 perhaps maybe um, in the last 10 years or so uh, Leszek Kielakowski a Polish philosopher uh, who um, I'll get to in a moment. I'll talk about his background. But he wrote this book in 1995, which uh, the subtitle of the book, um, by the way, is um, um, God Owes Us Nothing, uh, a uh, brief remark on um, the religion of Pascal and the spirit of Jansenism. And so it's about this 17th century movement. If you don't know what Jansenism is, I'll describe it briefly here. Jansenism... I actually have a one of my, a podcast on that. You can go back and look at it. It's actually a live. I did a live stream. I was live streaming that one. Um, was Jansenism was a 17th century movement within the Catholic Church in France, which, for a variety of reasons, the sort of founder of this movement was a guy named um, Jansenius, who was a bishop of Ypres in uh, uh, in. Um, boy in the sort of Protestant in sort of uh, Dutch French uh, sort of nether, uh, you know border country and wrote a big tome basically arguing that uh, you know the doctrine of Augustine meant that um, you know grace was irresistible and this sounded a lot like Protestantism to some of <laughs> some of his contemporaries and in particularly those who defended, you know, free will in regards to, you know, salvation. Can we do anything to contribute to our salvation? And his followers were a lot of, were a group of very pious uh, people, very devout, but also very learned. Uh, the Jansenists were effectively people who were actually involved in these debates. 
um, were people like Blaise Pascal, that's the person referenced in the title of that book. Pascal was a mathematician and a scientist, actually, who also became a Jansenist. He had a conversion experience, as it were, and um, became a follower of Jansenists. And the main body of people, uh, actually a family, several family members, uh, the Arnaud family in France, um, conducted pamphlet wars with the Jesuits. And one of the things, you know, this, this idea of the irresistibility of grace goes to is, uh, you know, if you uh, uh, got caught up in things like uh, you know, issues of communion, right? You know how today we have these communion wars? You know, we don't want people taking communion if they've been sinning mortal sin. Well, this, is, this was the kind of thing that the, um, the Jansenists took this idea, you know, irresistibility of grace, so literally they, they began to, you know, advocate a very um, rigorous um, notion of, you know, who could take the sacraments. For example, you know, later on today, St. Pius X uh, would encourage frequent communion. They discouraged it. They said people might, they thought most, they thought most people were sinful, so they shouldn't do it. <laughs> um, they were concerned people would take communion unworthily and damn themselves. One famous uh, tract, uh, Antoine Arnaud is the most famous of this Arnaud family who were these Jansenists, um, criticized a well-known nobleman in 17th century France who had gone to confession and then immediately went from confession after he'd been absolved to a, to a ball, to a dance party, uh, as being a sinful thing. So it was a very rigorous sort of way of looking at the faith. But these are very devout people. They practiced a very severe but very, uh, very you know, a very, de- very uh, sincere piety. And they attracted a lot of followers. And in fact, the Jansenists, in a lot of ways, attracted people who didn't really, didn't really have much to do with their, their controversial ideas. Uh, a lot of people in a lot of people who were devout in 17th century France just wanted a sort of devout, more austere form of the faith. And so, um, one of the things that happens with Jansenism long term is it kind of gets condemned by the papacy for a variety of reasons. I won't go into this here. You can go check out my my podcast episode on it. Uh, and the condemnations are kind of poorly worded, and they wind up. It's it's possible they wind up condemning what were otherwise perfectly orthodox statements that go back to Augustine. That's one of the things, by the way, it's still debated about the Jansenists. I don't know if this has ever been settled. Um, Jansenius thought that he had described Augustine's work perfectly. And again, this, this, is, this touched a nerve, of course, in the 17th century, because that's what the, the Protestant reformers thought they were doing. Luther, Calvin, you know, their whole ideas of you know, double predestination uh, and all that stuff. And from what I understand to this day, there's not an agreement on this among scholars. I know there was one scholar back in the 30s who basically said that, no, Jansenius got it wrong. A more recent scholar has basically defended him. So I don't know uh, if he was actually right about that, that issue, but it caused conflict. And uh, it caused conflict partly because you had this, you know, 17th century is era of the Thirty Years' War, the collapse, really, the final collapse of... of of uh, united Christendom into you know permanently Protestant and Catholic camps, and the emergence of things like modern science, and so this is sometimes seen as emblematic of this, the Jansenists wanting to, wanting to uh, insist upon a very you know perfect notion of the faith, a per, a, well, a perfection, right, moral rigorism and perfection, in the face of a modern society that's becoming wealthy and embracing science and doesn't want to do that stuff anymore. So all this stuff is in the background with Jansenism. And it's in directly addressed in this book by Lezek Kolakowski. I'll come back to the book in a minute. I want to talk about his background for a second. 
Uh, you know, oh, Kolakowski, you know, he's, he's, he's Polish, obviously. And he had a rough life, um, at least rough upbringing. If you ever see a picture of the man, he looks kind of... I mean, he looks like a vampire or something. He's just really gaunt. Very, he was a very unhappy person. <laughs> you get this reading his work. He's a very unhappy person in a lot of ways. Uh, for unfortunately good reasons. He was born in 1927 in Poland. Uh, his father was a left-wing political activist in Poland, a very secular one in a very religious country. So secular he was never baptized. Um, his mother died of cancer in 1930 when he was three. His father, because of course, famously, the, uh, the Nazis invaded Poland, his father uh, was arrested and then tortured to death by the Gestapo in 1943. And then they took his body, poured gasoline on it, and burned it, burn it, uh, burn it up. So, you know, by the time the war ends in 1945, the Soviet Union, the Russians come in, take over the country. You know, this is his life, <laughs> his first, you know, 18 years of life. And in fact, um, he joins, becomes a member of the Communist Party. Uh, and in fact, it, uh, he uh, becomes a, uh, a star, in fact, uh, in the sort of Soviet intelligentsia, or the Communist intelligentsia in Poland anyway. Uh, and, um, you know, his bleak outlook on life was basically, um, had one exception, that was, that was communism. He saw communism and Marx's ideas as the culmination of the Enlightenment, you know, getting away with superstition, getting, doing away with superstition, leading toward reason and rationality. He accepted the, 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 the basic understanding of Soviet communism at the time, that it was the fulfillment of a scientific view of history, that history is moving scientifically uh, toward this, you know, materialist utopia um, without a lot of morality in it. And this, this, um, this sets up uh, what happens with him because you know, he, you know, by 1950, he's doing graduate work uh, as, an, as a philosopher. And the one institution, of course, that opposed the party in Poland after the war was the Catholic Church. And so he took aim at the church. And he actually began, this, by the way, was someone who was actually, could read flat Latin fluently, even though he was not raised in a, a, a secular household, studied Aquinas uh, in order to critique him, um, was going to do his dissertation on that, changed his mind. Uh, decided to study the works of Baruch Spinoza, uh, changed his mind again. He's kind of a, he changed his mind a lot is the point uh, for a lot of reasons. But as he began to do this, um, to go through these changes of mind, Kolakowski began to see, began to see problems with the sort of Marxist worldview he'd inherited. Um, in particular, he had things, he went to, you know, travel, kind of disillusioned him. He went to Moscow and he saw what it was like there and it didn't seem to be the Soviets were much better off than the Poles intellectually. They were far worse than the Poles in a lot of ways. And, um, and basically he thought he found, you know, just nothingness there. Uh, and eventually um, you have um, a thaw within the Soviet Union after Stalin dies in 1956. He's privately denounced at a, a party meeting and people begin to speak out about, you know, the, the awful things that Stalin did while he's alive. And so he also read, he was influenced by this study he was doing of Christianity, but also by a guy named Lucian Goldman. I mentioned him for a second because he's connected to the book, which I'll get to in a minute, I promise. This explains a lot in the book when I get to it. And uh, this guy, Lucian Goldman, was a French Marxist. And he wrote a book in 1955 called The Hidden God, which was about the Jansenists. And... His, this is why it influenced uh, Kolakowski, is that he was saying that, 
Goldman said the Enlightenment was, was an advance in some ways, but it was also a retreat. And the reason why is that when you go from a, a Christian transcendental worldview to, a, to a, you know, a scientific one, it drains the world of meaning. Uh, it drains the world particularly of morality, the, wor- the, mo- moral, the moral virtues that make human life what it's supposed to be are, are, are done away with. And so socialism or Marxism as the completion of the Enlightenment is actually its undermining because it returns the human being to the center of the universe. Um, and so uh, this is where Goldman takes up the Jansenists and you know, Blaise Pascal, who basically, if you know Pascal's famous wager, the idea of, uh, you know, we're, it's certain we're going to die, so why don't we make this choice to believe in God and everything? This sort of... Um, I put this modern-sounding redemptive faith in the shadow of sort of certain death, you know, through whatever science or whatever. And so this idea had a real profound effect on, on uh, Pelikowski, and he began to become critical of, of the, uh, in his writings, of, of the party, of, of Marxism. Uh, he gained, you know, made him fame, famous this for a lot of, a lot of reasons. Eventually, uh, this led to him becoming even more critical by the 1960s, such that his phone was tapped, people were spying on him, and um, um, by 1966, he'd come to basically articulate that, you know, you had to have this, um, you know, you had to have this um, humanism, you had to humanize Marx if you were going to save it, but he began to actually introduce theological language into his writing in the 1960s. Um, Things like, um, you know, Sin, salvation, grace, uh, were describing real things in his mind. And in fact, he wrote a, a famous article in 1959 called The Jester and the Priest. And, um, yeah, and this, this, um, this, uh, uh, this idea of his was that basically there are two types, effectively, uh, that, um, I guess, I guess uh, social types, if you like, sociological types in a, a Marxist view of the world. A priest who is a rule maker, who's the guardian of the absolute, and a jester who is the the outsider who uh, you know who resists any sort of absolute you know tyranny or whatever, and this is very much characteristic uh, uh, characteristic of a lot of his thinking. He goes back and forth between these poles. He has a very either or way of of like going about making his arguments. He doesn't actually come to the, a, a conclusion like that though. He just he conducts his arguments that way. Uh, as I said, by the 1960s, he began basically saying that religion was, was, was ineradicable from human life, effectively. And what happened was he was beginning to take the side of the people who had been criticizing, the Christians. Um, began arguing that religion was basically a, a, an ineradicable sort of reality of human life, without which the, you know, you know, human moral virtues and reason would be sort of inexplicable. And, um, in fact, one of his essays in the 1960s was actually quoted by the Archbishop of, Archbishop of Krakow in one of his sermons. That Archbishop, Archbishop of Krakow would be, of course, Karol Wojtyla, the future John Paul II. Uh, and so he began criticizing Marxism. Um, so, uh, so much, he was eventually, uh, his books were refused publication. Uh, he um, gave a lecture attacking the government. He was condemned within the press. He was expelled from the party, lost all his jobs. And then he fled uh, to the West in 1968, wound up at All Souls College, Oxford, eventually, 
eventually broke with Marxism completely by 1973, published a, um, a started beginning publishing a three-volume work called The Main Currents of Marxism, where he basically trashed uh, <laughs> a lot of his former heroes, Marx, Lenin, Goldman, but also himself. Um, and basically denouncing the whole idea of a rational, ordered world that the Enlightenment had come up with, uh, you know, claiming it was a matter of, um, you know, utopian, what he called self-deification, uh, a refusal to accept things like contingency, all this stuff led naturally to the gulongs. Uh, and the thing is, he, he began to side culturally and, um, and politically with the more conservative, you know, he came known as a conservative um, Catholic commentary, even though he was always coy about his actual beliefs. Nevertheless, despite this, uh, he was convinced that um, as he put it in, um, in 1982, the absence of God spells the ruin of man, unquote. Uh, and in fact, um, he became fairly close, actually, at one point to John Paul II. When John Paul II became Pope in 1978, he invited him to meet him. Um, it's a little nice little story here when uh, Lezak Kolakowski basically um, thanked him for you know making time to meet him. He said, you know, the Pope carries the weight of the world on his shoulders, uh, John Paul II replied, we all carry the weight of the word on our shoulders, Lezek. <laughs> and that little story there. Um, but in fact, he became, you know, he actually became a frequent visitor from 1982 to, 19, to year 2000. Um, he came, um, um, uh, he visited uh, John Paul II every month uh, at the Castel Gandolfo in Rome to discuss, you know, philosophical matters and everything. And, and um, um, you know, he had lots of disagreements with John Paul II. Uh, in particular, the biggest thing about him, again, he embraced this sort of uh, darker view of the world by this point, and he'd seen a lot of evil, so he thought the reality of evil is one of the fundamental things in this world. But he thought that, um, in a couple of ways, he thought that uh, John Paul II was wrong about, you know, he uh, in terms of um, his belief that faith and reason could be reconciled. Um, he thought this was utopian, or semi-Pelagian. Um, in particular, he thought the belief in human goodness was deeply flawed. Again, given his life experiences, you can kind of understand why. And um, and this is what um, uh, and this is the kind of thinking that's in the background of his mind when he um, you know when he um, uh, wrote um, "God owes us nothing" in 1995. Now, what this refers to, by the way, the title, if you're wondering where the title, I explained the title about Jansenism earlier, God Owes Us Nothing. This is about, um, this is his description of um, the Jansenist or any, 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 I guess, you know, whatever, Jansenist or Calvinist view of the world that views us as sort of, you know, we have no, we're subject to a, a, a virtually unknowable God, right? The unknown God. This is a big thing with Luther, right? Uh, who we can't understand and who totally has power over us. The idea is that God is so, so powerful, so beyond human comprehension, he simply doesn't have any moral responsibilities towards us. Literally, he has no obligations, no moral obligations toward anyone. Hence, God owes us nothing. That's the sort of very severe, transcendent type of deity that he thinks, and I, I don't know if I necessarily agree, we'll get this in a second, about that the Jansenists uh, had in mind. So let's talk about the book a little bit here. And the book, again, given his, his you know, you can see his, his worldview, um, 
uh, why he'd be concerned about this. Because what he's essentially, essentially concerned about is theodicy, um, how to reconcile God's goodness and justice with the existence of evil in the world. Uh, it's the only time, as I'm, 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 far as I'm aware, Kolakowski ever... This is really it's, He's a philosopher. This is more about theology, although it, he's really taking, from, from my reading of it, from his experience of being a Marxist, um, but the the book uh, was intended to show that Pascal and the Jansenists, and by extension the Protestant reformers, I guess, um, believed what the church up until then had always believed about predestination, and that the church had somehow con- somehow abandoned it by condemning them because they did condemn Pascal, they condemned the idea that you were totally you know again because again Council of Trent said you know you do have some sort of free freedom of will with regard to salvation. Um. On the other hand, he basically, and I say this, he, he said, that's what he's saying, he's basically saying the church was right, that it needed to update and adapt its, its, uh, its uh, teachings to modern times. He wanted to show that, the, that Pascal and Jansenists were wrong to be as rigorous as they were, and what they needed was, you know, he, and again, he's, he's not totally, when I say that, I don't mean to be so um, certain about this because he is this very subtle thinker. He, he was used to writing, by the way, under a totalitarian regime. So he is kind of being coy about a lot of what he thinks. But he says stuff like this. T- trust me, in the actual book, um, what, it, what the church needed was a theology that could adapt itself to a new civilization. The church had once been made up of saints, but they really couldn't do that anymore. Uh, it was no longer be a church of saints it was, or, or saint, a group of the perfect like the Jansenists wanted to be. And um, in this, he really treats this whole debate over freedom of will to be an either-or problem. I mentioned that earlier. That's one of the, that's one of the, the I think, important characteristics of his thinking. And he actually accuses both Thomas Aquinas and Trent as being ambiguous on the matter. Uh, anything but you know, complete freedom of will or complete, I guess, necessity is just uh, hedging your bets to him, or was. And... Um, Again, he wasn't a theologian, so he ignores certain things. He doesn't talk, by the way, about, for example, the doctrine of sanctification at all, from what I can remember of the book. Um, and so he doesn't talk about, you know, um, again, that sort of middle position the church essentially takes, that God's grace can regenerate us, make us capable of cooperating with him. Uh, he, he thinks that's just a cop-out in a lot of ways. He also, and again, I'm not sure about this because I mentioned this before, at several places in the book, seems to basically conflate what Augustine said about grace, what the Jansenists said about grace, what Luther and Calvin said about grace. And I'm just not sure that's actually accurate in a lot of ways. And um, and again, one of these, these things he's thinking about, again, obviously in this book, is the 17th century growth of science. Um, the idea that before science, you could believe somehow, you could believe somehow in the idea of moral perfection, but now it's become suspect that modern people who are you know, uh, you know who um, um, who are into pleasure and stuff like this. I'm never going to sort of believe in that sort of thing, I guess. And he, he again, he very subtly, on the one hand, he again, I say that he, I think he's overdoing it on purpose because I think he does. He wants there to be something like the Jesuits, between the Jansenists believe in, but he knows what people really want for the most part is what the Jesu- what Jesuits basically offered them, which was kind of a comforting way to salvation for the you know. The, the emerging middle classes of early modern Europe. Um, and so, 
by extension, he's basically, I, again, I don't know if he's condemning or agreeing with the church on this, but basically saying that but the church, by condemning Jansenism, implicitly rejects Augustine, embraces you know, the Jesuits, and implicitly the modern world, I think. Um, interesting book. Um, and um, he also has fascinating things to say about the psychology of Jansenism, things that I think... Uh, I used to think we're a little off. I think they're basically correct at this point in my life. I've changed my mind about the book several times. Uh, he basically says Pascal and the Jansenists were basically excessively morbid, uh, harsh, that the reason for the harshness of their faith was more psychological than theological. The last line of the book is, uh, it was a faith for unhappy people designed to make them more unhappy. I guess the idea is that they, the sign that they're, they're, they're one of the elect is that they are unhappy, and so to make yourself more distinguished as the elect, you have to make yourself more unhappy, I guess. Um, and it is true, by the way. If you know anything about Pascal, Pascal was someone who suffered from you know, physical ailments, probably, I think from depression, from what, I, um, what I, I've, I've noted the man. And if you know anything about like the Jansenists, it's, it's a very, not just austere, it's in some ways kind of sickly in a lot of ways, their, their piety. There was a, a painter, I think his name was Nicolas Poussin, who was a Jansenist? If you go to, uh, just go Google his name. He there used to be. There's a. I think there still is. When I was living in Kansas City, Missouri, in the uh, Nelson Atkins Museum in that city, a painting by this guy. And it's a painting of the crucifixion, Christ on the cross, and the painting is really dour. It's Christ on the cross, all all alone. There's no other figures in the painting. The background is like against a a dark you know, ominous sky. It's, it very much captures that kind of, there is a side to Jansenism that is just, you wonder if these people, you know, just needed some antidepressants or something, you know? Nonetheless, I've always found uh, the book fascinating. Um, even though he's dealing with these, you know, very, um, you know, it's very, I don't want to say dark, but it's very, uh, difficult ideas, you know, the Odyssey is a you know, huge thing, right? How do you solve that? I'm not a philosopher, I couldn't tell you. I'm definitely not a theologian. And, um, and yeah, I mean, this, this idea that, you know, God owes us nothing. And again, we're, we're in this world, and apparently by the end of his life, he had this very bleak view of the world that we're basically governed by a God we can't know and understand. And again, in a, in a world that's this, this harsh, can be this evil it's a real hard sort of belief to sort of uh <clears throat> to put your faith in but what's interesting is he's he, he makes these accusations against uh against the jansenist if you don't know this this accusation gets thrown thrown against people in the modern church in the contemporary church when people want to accuse you know contemporary usually conservative or traditionalist Christ, of catholics of being too rigorous they'll sometimes hurl the epithet jansenist at them as if it's not possible for people to, you know, um, uh, to fulfill the church's commandments about things like adultery and stuff like this. It obviously refers to stuff about uh, communion um, that's been going on, especially since Pope Francis became, um, became pontiff. And it, it's, a, it, it's just an interesting, it's, it's, again, it's almost hard to know exactly, exactly what, he's, what he thinks, actually, in some ways. But it speaks to how the Jansenists still kind of speak to us a lot of ways. Uh, Pascal, for example, is very modern in the fact that he's, you know, he's someone who's a scientist and who saw his, 
you know, he saw his uh, saw his faith as the center of his life, had trouble reconciling it with what you know his science was telling him about the natural world. If you ever read his pensées, his pensées are, are 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 definitely worth reading. I I used to be really into um, uh, into Pascal. I'll I'll stop here and give you this, this personal anecdote. And I first read I, I first read Pascal and this book actually God owes us nothing. Years ago, uh, when I was uh, still living in Gainesville, Florida, and I still I think it was when I was in my master's degree there at the University of Florida. And um, it was actually, I believe, for, um, um, okay, I lost my train of thought, sorry. Oh, I read this, read Pascal in this book um, because I attended uh, some uh, lectures at uh, the Christian Study Center of Gainesville. If you don't know what this is, it's a sort of um, um, intellectual center for, it's mostly Protestants as far as I could tell. Uh, I had not. I, I think I attended these before I became Catholic. This is, yeah, or I became Catholic in two thousand three, probably two thousand one, two thousand two, something like that. I was there, and um, you know, Pascal and Jansenism sound, I guess, close enough to <laughs> close enough to, to, to Protestantism, so they're 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 easier for them to take, I guess. Um, but came to that, you know, reading that book through that that um, that uh, experience and. You know, I didn't know at the time when I was reading Pascal and reading you know, this book by this kind of dark book in some ways by by uh, Kolakowski is that I myself had serious depression <laughs> later diagnosed with it and I kind of gotten off of it. And I, my point is, I used to really and I still really appreciate Pascal. I think you probably shouldn't read it that much if you're depressed. <laughs> it's not going to make you more happy. I can tell you that. Um, it's very fascinating stuff in a lot of ways, especially pa- Pascal's Pensee. There's nothing too bad in there but it's it's very you know it has this kind of kind of a morbidity about it i think and um i mentioned all this because i you know this idea uh, of kolakowski's that you know god owes us nothing god is this totally you know incomprehensible all-powerful being who just doesn't owe us anything you know there's something attractive about that if i think if you're if you're suffering from things like depression it's nice to know. Nice to know that there's some being in the universe who's all powerful. Because I think you feel powerless. I did. You feel powerless when you're depressed all the time. And um, the idea that God doesn't owe us anything, and we can't, you know, we can't restrain him by any sort of. He doesn't have any obligations to us. I guess made sense to me at the time. Um, I think when you're suffering, you want a God who's all powerful to sort of like punch a hole through the universe. You know, reason and order and nature be damned. Just you know, make the suffering go away. I think. And I mentioned all this because I got into an argument with a friend of mine one time who was a theologian. I won't mention his name because I don't want anybody. <laughs> I don't want him associated with this podcast because my my views are kind of traditionalist and I don't think he is. I don't want him being being associated with this. But I remember getting an argument about this with him. And I mentioned this idea and like he was really opposed to it, thought it was wrong, and and I, I you know I, I basically insisted he was wrong and. I, I realize now that I was completely wrong <laughs> about this, actually, when you think about it, because this this desire to have this totally free God who has no obligations, it kind of cuts against God's goodness, um, because it's true, by nature, God is all-powerful, right? Um, we literally can't make claims on him by nature, but if you believe in the Christian revelation that you know, Jesus of Nazareth was God on earth, God revealed himself to us and reached out to us and 
revealed something to us. And, this is the other thing, he made promises to us. And, you know, God, if he really is perfect and all these other things, can't fail to keep his promises. So, well, I, I sort of worked my way through that because I was, you know, you're depressed for lots of reasons, right? And part of it is, you know, there are evils in your life that don't go away. I must say, I'm, I'm a very much more happy person than I used to be. I'm very grateful for my life. Not every evil ever, I, okay, that may not ever goes away, but sometimes it doesn't. Um, that doesn't mean God hasn't fulfilled what he promised. And that's why I had to go back in my life and think very carefully. You know, the, all my experiences of prayer, what's in, the, what's in the scripture, what's in tradition. You know, I think sometimes we confuse those things, what God owes us. And it gets, that's kind of why, and it's someone like, someone like Kalakowski, who had, man, it's, it's pretty rough, you know, his life. Well, John Paul II had a rough, you know, upbringing, you know, in Poland like that as well. When you're so sensitive to the evils in the world, it can seem, the whole idea of reconciling reason and faith and stuff like this just seems, well, I guess it seemed to me at the time, it seemed um, superficial, right? It seemed, it didn't seem to cope with the reality of the things I was experiencing. But you have to look at reality a little differently, give it a different sort of attention, I think. And if I have, again, my, my problem with Kolakowski is that, again, he's a philosopher in the book. I'd say that, you know, he, you know, he claims at one point in the book to say that the new world, quote-unquote, of the 17th century and modernity made it a, quote, a hopeless task to, quote, stifle, to convince people, quote, to stifle their curiosity and their mundane interest, unquote, in order to live up to the demands of the Gospels. Now, look, sometimes we won't be able to do this, but to live up to the Gospels of man. I think we won't, all, we will always, won't all, will always be like that. And the idea, I mean, it's, you know, what I realized as I got older is these are the councils of despair, right? The world is so utterly changed that, you know, God's, God's promises in those Gospels are just no longer have force. Well, that doesn't make any sense. Not only does it make any sense, it doesn't, you know, you can get so wrapped up. I mean, I'm the kind of person, I like powerful experiences, even if they're depressing and awful. And sometimes you can get kind of mesmerized by it. Um, other experiences in your life tell you something very different. And uh, I think that's the big criticism. I, I think he looks at these things. And again, he's writing in a certain milieu. He was worried, by the way, really worried, actually. You can tell from the book about where Poland was headed uh, after, after the fall of communism. So was John Paul II. People seem to be you know, losing, uh, losing grip on religion. From what I understand, even though Poland is still much higher in sort of religious practice and and attendance and membership than other European countries, it's still declining. So he was to be concerned about that. Um, but it's an interesting, just interesting that people you know latch on to this 17th century movement because uh, we are still kind of living with some of those. Well, first of all, you're always living with the problem of evil, I guess, in a way. But also this problem of, okay, based on that, do we reject, you know, reason? Do we? Because if you embrace this voluntaristic view of the world. And by voluntarist, I mean based on the will, right? This is this idea, you know, what theological voluntarism is. If you don't know these, I don't mean to drop all these abstract terms on you, but it just means that God is prim primarily defined by his will and not his reason. Um, the most extreme version of this idea is that basically whatever God wills is good, irrespective of how reasonable it is. 
it's like the old, you know, the old Euthyphro dilemma. The Euthyphro dilemma is this is the dilemma uh, proposed by by um, um, Plato, ancient world. Uh, is something good because the gods uh, willed it, or did the gods will it because it was it was good? In other words, is there some standard of goodness independent of the gods' will? And so you put this in the Christian context. You know, there are some people who want to emphasize, you know, his will to a great degree. No one, as far as, at least not many people, as far as I'm aware, have ever gone. Because if you take that to his logical extreme, it means whatever God wants, no matter what it is. If God de- it means basically if God declared that pedophilia was good, it'd be good. That's literally what it would mean. Anything he declared to be good would be. And, um, you know, anything, he could overturn natural law whenever he felt like it. He could overturn revelation. He could change his mind, right? He's not, it didn't matter. His will is everything. The other vision of God is, uh, and again, most people, when they take the voluntaristic view, don't take that view. Let me be clear. That's the most, that's the extreme view. But the reason why they take a voluntaristic line on God is it tends to emphasize his solicitude toward human beings, right? When they say voluntaristic or will, they usually mean like uh, his love for mankind. Usually it's taken as his love for mankind that way. But it can be taken in a darker sense. Um, in what I know of uh, Islamic theology, that's more or less how they view him. In the Quran, there are, there are passages where it basically says God can change, he can change passages of his revelation if he wants to. But of course, the other view is that God is sort of reason himself, right? And he doesn't, that he is kind of bound by the precepts. He can't violate things like that. And, you know, this is what, this is where Kolakowski disagreed with John Paul II. I think perhaps John Paul II was on on shakier ground when he thought you could reconcile certain parts of the modern world uh, to Catholicism, you know, human rights, democracy, all that stuff. Can that stuff be totally done that way or other things? But uh, you know, faith and reason. I think they, they, they. I think I think in some ways they actually go together naturally. But um, it is our sin in this world that makes them separate and makes evil so overwhelming. And, you know, this idea, you know, of Kolakowski's, you know, it has one virtue. It makes things simple, right? You don't, you no longer have to, because it's a lot of work reconciling face and reason. Excuse me, I said face and reason. <laughs> Let me reconcile my face with reason. I don't think I can do that anymore. I'm 45. No, reconcile faith and reason, right? Um, by just uh, waving the problem away. There is no reconciling faith and reason. Hell, it's almost like there is no reason at all, really. Um, but I don't think, I don't think it works ultimately. Even though it makes you, the book made me think. I have to say, I've been thinking about it for years, so I give it that credit. I give credit, by the way, to the people at the study center, maybe, which is still in existence, by the way. I've never been back there in years, but um, made me think about this stuff. And uh, interesting things, of course, about the Jansenists as well. Again, I've had my say on this. You can listen to that podcast, but. I'm not really sure the Jansenists should be used like this. Um, they're in a, they live in a different time period, different historical setting than we did. I know we still dealing with the same problems they did. They, they were right to you know identify some of these things, Pascal especially. But I think sometimes people use the Jansenists as a Rorschach blot for ecclesiastical controversy. is not the best thing in the world. But um, still a, a fascinating subject and a fascinating take on them by... Leszek Kolakowski, I think I'm pronouncing that the right way. I, I, I don't do Polish names. I apologize to any Polish people listening to this. My, my apologies. Um, uh, his book, God Owes Us Nothing. If you had the stomach for it, I could recommend it as a, as a thoughtful work on a very difficult subject. 
And so that is it for this episode of Controversies in Church History. I hope you enjoyed it. Remember, find us on social media, on Facebook, on uh, Twitter, YouTube, uh, and uh, on the web, churchcontroversies.com, as well as if you would like to become a patron of the, uh, of the podcast on Patreon as well, which is not necessary, by the way. Uh, with a few exceptions, there'll be a few things I do, bonus material for patrons. I will do some stuff for them. Pretty much everything else will be uh, available free to everybody, so don't worry too much about that. And speaking of that, upcoming, a um, few more episodes. Everyone will get this episode. There will be a bonus episode for uh, for uh, patrons uh, soon, uh, episode. And then um, the also the next episode in the series on Latinization of the Eastern Rites. This is the biggie in the early modern world, the Latinization of the St. Thomas Christians. So look for that fairly soon. My semester starts, the school, well, the school I teach has already started. It doesn't start for me until the 18th of September, so I'm trying to get that out before then. Things will slow down, as I mentioned before, um, after that. But I have some things, I'll give you more of some content, you know, stuff from the blog, read some articles and stuff like that going forward. And, oh, yes, uh, for patrons, this is a, you know, the, the interview stuff is for patrons. I have lined up my first guest. So uh, interview, this will be a video interview becoming. You'll see it. Maybe eventually we'll do the stuff live if we get enough people interested. But uh, that is coming. And so hopefully the topics, as we'll see, we're getting ironed out, will interest you. So that's all upcoming on Controversies in Church History. I want to thank everybody again, all my listeners. God bless you for your support. I hope these things are helpful for you, give you stuff to think about. Uh, at least while you're driving, I'm going to give you something to distract you anyway. <laughs> and uh, in any case, uh, everyone have a wonderful week. Um, and God bless you and uh, fill you with all good things. Take care and talk to you soon.